This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Monday, February 26th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Talking a little lower and slower on a Monday. That's just the way it is. It's a slow cooker Monday edition of the show. Coming up on the show today, the federal liberals announced first steps in creating a national pharmacare plan on Friday afternoon. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will round up some of the reaction from the weekend. Advocates are calling for New Brunswick to reform its disability support program. Shelley Petit will share some perspective. And a new Netflix docudrama explores Albert Einstein's moral dilemma with the atomic bomb. Amy Amanti has a review of Einstein and the bomb. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv or live in audio form at amiplus.ca. Thank you for taking the time wherever you might be out there in the world. Let's begin with the top story of the day. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is wrapping up his weekend trip to Eastern Europe today. Trudeau is reflecting on Canada's commitment to defence spending within NATO. He laid out several investments Canada is making. We know there is more to do and we are doing it. Uh, We are purchasing 88 new uh, F-35 fighter jets. Uh, We are investing in the modernization of NORAD uh, because we recognize that the Canadian Arctic is actually a new front uh, for NATO uh, in uh, keeping our democracy safe. uh, And we will continue to step up. Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk offered his perspective on NATO commitments through a translator. When it comes to such politicians as the former U.S. president who think that NATO will not uh, defend allies if they don't fulfill uh, NATO requirements. So the simplest answer is that we all, with no exception, fulfill those requirements. It's not because some politician wants it or not. It's because it's our commitment. Defense Minister Bill Blair was also in Poland over the weekend. He outlines some additional support Canada is providing to Ukraine. A week ago Monday, or a week ago tomorrow, um, I was able to announce that Canada is providing over 800 uh, new drones that are that are actually manufactured in Canada. It's about a $95 million investment, but it's, it's not just the drones, but it's all the training and supports that Ukrainians need in order to use those effectively. Saturday marked two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Coming back to North America and into the world of economics, you know I love me some economic stories. There's new economist survey data from the United States. Jennifer King breaks it down. In a new survey released by the National Association for Business Economics, professional economists from universities, businesses, and investment firms are predicting a much better year than they were just a few months ago, with a forecast of 2.2% growth after inflation, 
up from just 1.3% predicted in November. Economists also have more than doubled their estimates for the number of jobs gained across the economy this year. Ellen Zentner, chief U.S. economist at Morgan Stanley and the president of the NABE, said a wide range of factors are behind the 2024 upgrade, including spending by both the government and households. The U.S. job market and household spending have been resilient in the face of high interest rates that made mortgages and credit card bills more expensive. While prices are still higher than consumers would like, inflation has slowed enough that most of the surveyed forecasters expect interest rate cuts to begin by mid-June. I'm Jennifer King. For fear of overly repeating myself, economists by their nature are going to be a little bit more conservative in the way that they look at the economic world and the landscape of the economy. You heard so much bantying last year about recession, imminent recession, recession, imminent. It's happening right now. Hide under a table. Recession. And then what happened? There was no significant macroeconomic recession. There was an economic pullback. But as a lot of economists have now labeled it, it's called a soft landing. And now you're starting to see what that soft debt landing looks like from a macroeconomic perspective, job numbers, GDP growth, the stock market, all of those major indicators. But then you get the flip side of the microeconomic data, which is incredible amounts of credit card debt, unaffordability of housing. And it makes you start to wonder if just macroeconomic data points are necessarily worth the platforming of the conversation rather than the microeconomic experience of individuals. How many Canadian businesses said if they couldn't get even a few thousand dollars of pandemic loan forgiveness, they were going to go belly up? It's a precarious thing out there. So I do want to share that optimism because if the economists are feeling optimistic, then maybe the rest of us should feel a little bit more optimistic too, but it's hard to feel optimistic when you're worried about interest rates and mortgages and credit card debt, student loans, yada, yada, yada. That's right. I'm yada, yada, yada the importance of microeconomics, kind of like the way the rest of the mass media does. Okay, let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked all about generational cohorts. According to Stats Canada, millennials are now the biggest generation in the country. We're number one. We're number one. Went for a little bit more of an abstract question, though. How do you feel about the way generational co- cohorts are portrayed broadly in mass media? 14% of you said fairly. 86% of you said unfairly. Pearly Pigtails writes in, unfairly, too much focus on their tech skills, not enough on their thoughtfulness, open-mindedness, or optimism. I'm not all the way sure that millennials are optimistic, but I do like the sentiment. Today's daily poll is all about accessing government programs. You'll hear about calls for reform in New Brunswick when it comes to the number of points of contact when it comes to getting disability services in that province. But it's worth broadening this out a little bit and asking about access to government programs in general. How would you describe your experience accessing government programs? Complicated, reasonable, or simple? Uh, There's probably going to be some uh, picking at the language that I've chosen here for your options at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Laura Bain, I'm going to start with a story from my own meandering personal experience here. I'm in the process of trying to renew my passport, and I went to the Canada.ca website this weekend to start getting myself in line to figure these things out. And my first reaction was, 
Oh, this is complicated. There were a million bullet points and a million questions and a million things and this, that, this other and non-plain language and a bunch of bureaucratic ease that I was trying to sift through. And then I eventually found the bullet points that I was looking for. It's still going to be a little bit of a process here, getting all these forms filled out, getting pictures taken, getting them filled out properly, going to an office, booking an appointment, waiting in line, blah, 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 blah. So my feeling here at first blush is complicated, but I understand why it's complicated. So I land somewhere between complicated and reasonable, but it did take me about 25 to 30 minutes to figure out what I was doing on that website that was supposed to be the simplified website on how to go applying for a passport, or not applying, renewing a passport. Yes, and of course, renewing a passport is a lot more straightforward than getting a passport. In the first place, yeah. (laughs) I think that's very relatable and kind of like you, I can rule out the answer uh, simple, but I was sort of going between the other two um, and trying to think about the government services that I use. Um, I also have a passport, uh, you know, a Nova Scotia ID card. I have a registered disability savings plan and student loans is probably one of the main ways that I'm interfacing with government programs right now. Um, So in some cases, I have found the process to be somewhat reasonable, but that's within the context of me having a very straightforward diagnosis and documentation for my disability. And I think in a lot of cases, also, it's come down to having support. um, So people who can help me fill out forms and um, get to the offices where I, I need to be. For example, the Access Nova Scotia office here where you go for a lot of provincial government services is ironically in a completely inaccessible location that I wouldn't be able to get to without support. Um, You know, but then I think where it can get very complicated, I like that you mentioned plain language. That's another very important point. But I think when you don't fit the narrow parameters of the program, and I'm sort of fitting, finding that a bit with the student loan for myself right now, or if you have to get into any sort of dispute, then it can get complicated. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned disability supports, and I think that that's a program that's notoriously very complicated to navigate and and intentionally so, I I think, in order to act as a deterrent. Now, I, I do think one of my strengths is uh, navigating difficult situations, and that's probably a reason I've gone into social work is because I, I see that it's something that a lot of people struggle to navigate, and uh, you know, I would hope to be uh, of assistance. Yeah. So one. Area. So one of the things that Shelley Petit from the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities is going to talk about in about twenty minutes here is the number of points of contact you have to go to to access a disability service, and that's where the intersectionality of the conversation comes into play. You're right. The pa- passport application is me dealing with one ministry to go get that done. When you're talking about any kind of above and beyond disability support that has not already been approved your entire life, you might be dealing with a dozen points of contact. This came out in Newfoundland and Labrador as they're trying to reform some of their economic supports. They're trying to get the number of points of contact down from several dozen ministries and points of contact Mm -hmm. to about a dozen, right? And even a dozen sounds like quite a bit, but when you're talking about multiple ministries, multiple people, oh, you've been bounced here, you've been bounced there, that's where really that complicated comes in and this is where I bring in John Lepke based out there in Saskatchewan filling out filling in for Alex Smite today John you and I talked about an auditor general's report in Saskatchewan 
about how long it takes to get a phone call returned in the province from some of the various ministries involved with economic support or disability support. And that's where this gets really frustrating, that you might have to deal with a dozen points of contact and you might be waiting six months for even just a phone call back to acknowledge that you've reached out for support. Yes, in my personal experience, and I'm sure the South Party and NDP would not be happy to have me say this on air, what a lead into a sentence, but it is faster to phone or email your MLA because they will answer faster than the system that is supposed to answer you. Um, on the federal level, I'm, I'm right there with the, the disability tax credit. Um, I'm also a, uh, an open and shut case in terms of disability tax credit. Um, but things like I was shocked. I needed to, uh, uh, somebody asked me very nicely to renew my disability parking placard that I hadn't had in a decade. <laughs> and um, I was shocked that you could apply online. And I, I probably shouldn't be shocked at that. But things are are so glacial here. And then lastly, I'll say that the, um, I'm currently trying to get uh, more information about my RDSP and some intricacies with that fund and mm. that money. And um you know the old joke about you know three journalists in a room, there are four opinions. Well, it turns out that if you ask four people at the CRA, you get five opinions. <laughs> so these these systems, when it turns into these disability supports, can be so complicated. And I think that is why we are seeing such a um, you know as we've seen a push for more disability funding on the federal level. That's why there is some some skepticism. Um, you know, are we going to gatekeep it with the disability tax credit that is still prohibitive to like, I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but a high percentage of disabled people in this country. Yeah, that, that's that been explored by a few columnists on the show. Uh, Rebecca Dingwell, journalist in Nova Scotia, uh, explored that a few months ago, as did uh, Kelly Braun Johnson of Completely Inclusive in Montreal, talking about how sometimes the amount of paperwork and expectation and onus put on the person with the disability is somewhat unfair, that the process is convoluted deliberately to make it unfair and sort people out. So that that's, a, that's again, that's you guys both cited perfect examples here of where there might be a little bit of a lack of communication and uh, John I've definitely spent some time on the RDSP FAQ site uh, myself uh, trying to figure out about uh, withdrawal and withdrawal methods and uh, when you can actually start getting some of this money and there's about 17 different answers and uh, it kind of explains why maybe folks at the uh, CRA might not be able to give an utterly clear answer as well okay John Laura thank you both for your perspective on this I know there's already multiple comments on the Facebook question being posed here uh, it was only put up about 20 minutes ago, and there's already about half a dozen comments up on the Facebook post. But you can comment at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. I acknowledge that there's some irony in giving out so many points of contact when one of the criticisms here is the number of points of contact, but I love it when you call 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, the federal liberals announced their first steps in creating a national pharmacare plan. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will round up some of the reaction from the weekend. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. A bit of big federal news emerged late on Friday. The federal Liberals announced first steps in creating a national pharmacare plan. Some reaction poured in over the weekend. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, a Friday news dump with good news. That 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 that's a new one for me. That's a rare one. Yeah, that does not happen every week <laughs> or year. Uh, yeah, matter. I mean, good, good. Maybe not good news, but at least news that could at least be perceived as somewhat positive. Uh, why why wait for a Friday press release on this? Exactly. Uh, let's say with news, a lot of people will find promising or encouraging yeah. because, like you said. This, we've been waiting for quite a while, a pharmacare deal with part of the conditional confidence and supply agreement that the NDP currently has with the Liberals. And it was almost in doubt for a bit when the NDP was saying that if this pharmacare deal does not come forward, we're done with that pact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The government's on its own. But no, lo and behold, out comes an announcement on Friday. Still very sparse on details. We'll get to that. But Basically, the, 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 the upshot is that there is an outline of the first phase of a single-payer pharmacare program that was probably going to be tabled in the House this coming week. Yeah, like you said, a bit sparse on details, but politicians are back in Ottawa, so legislation is going to move a little bit faster this time of year. That's it, right. It is a little narrow. Details are still sparse, but what are they planning to include in these first steps? The only things we know of for certain are that they're going to be including a lot of diabetes medications and equipment, specific ones we're not sure of at this moment, other than the fact that Ozempic, the the, the uh, trendy drug du jour, is probably not going to be covered for off-label purposes. But uh, diabetes drugs and the other big piece that we know is going to be covered is contraception. Again, I don't know the specifics on which methods and, and to what degree they'll be covered, but those are the two big pillars that we know of for the moment. And those have come from the NDP. The Liberals are declining to comment on any kind of particulars until we actually have the legislation in hand. Yeah. So beyond contraception and um, and diabetes, which are the two that the NDP disclosed, we don't know what else it's going to cover. But it's worth noting, too, that this is definitely going to be a phased approach. Well, we know that much already. Yeah. So whatever comes out this week uh, is are the building blocks and the foundation for this program. Over the weekend, Finance Minister Christian Freeland was in Poland and she did take a mm-hmm. little bit of time to comment on this saying that mm-hmm. whatever whatever is going to be rolled out here has already been priced into the budget this isn't necessarily right. going to be uh, extraordinary new spending it was already in their fiscal plans but what's some of the other reaction been well her I, I just want to follow up on hers a little tiny bit please, please go ahead we can have a, a bit of a price tag based on her comments in that she was talking about how yes you, you're right this has been budgeted um the, the government's under a lot of pressure right now from the conservatives and others to tame the deficit and lower the debt so she's indicated that they're not keen to do that and the price tag they're looking at right not keen to to inflate it i, sh- I should qualify um but we're looking at a price tag of 800 million for this first phase uh, just to give everyone a bit of a scope. In terms of other reaction, uh, it's been interesting, actually, that there's, by and large, it's been pretty well received. Uh, the unions, of course, are, are delighted about this and, and are crediting the NDP with making it happen. Um, there's some positive and interesting reaction around what a single-payer system might do in terms of Canada's bargaining power to set drug prices with mm, manufacturers, mm. Uh, which I found it to be an interesting thread. Uh, but the flip side or argument of that that I've seen in, in a couple of corners is is that a single-payer system also might potentially compromise coverage for those who have private plans and have, have more extensive coverage at the moment. So uh, I, I, I don't see, you know... That, that argument may resonate more in some circles than others, but um, those are the sorts of reactions I've been seeing so far. Again, 
pretty broad strokes reactions due to broad strokes legislation at this stage that we don't have details on. But yeah. by and large, this is being pretty well received, I'd say. So that's why we'll skip over the notion of a timeline on a rollout because the legislation still needs to yeah. come to the table. It needs to be voted on. It needs to be uh, consulted on. Bippity boppity boo as uh, goes totally. in the world of, of federal politics. But you you mentioned about the supply and confidence agreement between the federals and the NDP. To mm-hmm. my mind, the liberals need to do anything they can to keep that supply and confidence uh that supply and confidence <laughs> deal in place intact uh, yes. intact for as for as long as they humanly can because polling data came out over the weekend that showed that they're down to about 24 percent national support with the conservatives at 41 percent national oh, yeah. support so t- to me they want to push off the possibility of an election for as long as possible if not just for the pharmacare, for the national daycare plan, for the dental care plan, uh, for fear of uh, for fear of jinxing it, the national disability, disability benefit, credit. But, yeah, exactly, but, all these things. But but I do think about the way this fits into the bigger political picture. There's no way the federal liberals want to nuke this plan. I, like I would be stunned and shocked if it's not September 2025 till an actual election ends up taking place. Because neither of these parties want to give up where they land right now with just the surge that Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, is having. I could not agree more. I, I totally agree with you. It was very much in the Liberals' best interests to get this deal, uh, to, to, to follow through on this crucial promise, especially with the threat of that confidence and supply agreement being yanked out from under them. Um, and and none of and they have not yet found an active counter narrative to Pierre Poilievre, or at least not one that sticks. And they're going to want to a be doing that and b raising a lot of money uh, yeah, <laughs> before they yeah. go back to the polls. And uh, we know that the conservatives not only are out front in terms of opinion polling, but in terms of those fundraising dollars, they've done they've been really successful in raising money since Poilievre took the helm. So yeah, no party other than the conservatives, I think, are keen to go to the polls anytime soon. And I'm with you, Dave. I think. The, the the confidence and supply agreement was always meant to forestall an election until 2025. There was no firm date at then, but I'm inclined to agree that they'd probably want to look at the later part of the year, if anything. Yeah, well, um, if, if, and, if only for a bit of symmetry, right? Because the, the 2021 yes. election was held in the fall, so it kind fall. of stands to yep. reason that there'd be a fall election in 2025. Yeah, that's and that's a four year term. That's a pretty, you know, with a majority government, that's what we'd be looking at anyway. So it that would that would make sense. And now it looks like barring further disruptions or, or major resistance to this plan. And I guess and it could too depend on what the legislation contains. If the NDP aren't happy with it, uh, then we could find ourselves back at square <laughs> no, one. But... No, no. Oh boy, I'll feel my oh, it'll just... it'll feel like twenty twenty one all over again. Yeah, election imminent. That that election was imminent <laughs> for thirteen months according to the mass media. Um okay. Hey, New Brunswick had it worse last year. Remember that? They, oh, they were on tender hooks for an election yeah, for yeah. months and it cost the government two million up two million bucks just that. to speculate. Anyway. <laughs> well, speculation costs money, Michelle. Uh, okay, Michelle, let's. You should look. You should look at my sports wagering accounts. Okay, let's. Um, let's. Let's uh, jump into the daily poll here. You mentioned New Brunswick sure. right mm-hmm. after the break. Uh, Shelley Petit of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities is going to be talking about ways in which New Brunswick's disability support system can be reformed, particularly around points of contact and process mm. in the system. And I'm asking yes. a broader question this morning as part of the daily poll at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. How would you describe your experience experience accessing government programs? Uh, we can definitely uh, pick at some of the language that I've chosen here for options, but complicated, sure. reasonable, or simple? Honestly, 
for me, and I recognize, I, much like John and Laura in the last segment, I feel like I have some circumstances that qualify my answer a bit in that my case is is very straightforward. I have one easily identifiable disability um, that simplifies matters. So I would say reasonable. And a big part of that, I, I want to make a nonpartisan observation about my, prov my provincial government. In Ontario, I, I will say that it looks like anecdotally, but also from all the press releases that come through my inbox, the government in place right now has actually done quite a bit to bring services online and streamline the process. And I have benefited from that a couple of times. Now, the, the, what, accessibility was not always a big factor in this. Uh, you might have heard from uh, community friend David Lepofsky, but some of the ways he had to nudge the government to make sure, for instance, that while they were... While you were able to renew your driver's license online, you could not do so for your health card, which didn't do us a lot of good. Um, but ultimately, those changes got made and the processes are a lot simpler and a lot easier. I've been able to renew a couple of cards and get things done in like minutes flat and get the card sent to me ahead of schedule. Uh, but there is one big exception in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And I think residents here would note that dealing with the assistive device program is um, is an experience. <laughs> Uh, so that's a that's a big one. That's a crucial program that provides some some increasingly limited financial aid for adaptive technology. Um, so you can imagine that interfacing with this program ideally should be pretty straightforward, but it truly is not. And uh, that so yeah. So provincially, that's my only real gripe. And federally, I've had an easy time of it too. Uh, filling out a I renewed my passport last year, and that was one of the easiest online applications I've ever done. Um, I, I, I haven't had a lot of difficulty, but I also don't have to access as much. I've never had to mm. deal with CERB. I haven't had to go on EI. Um, there's a number of programs I simply haven't had to access. And, and like John and Laura, disability tax credit just goes straight in because my case was pretty straightforward. Um, so for me, I, I'm very lucky to say very reasonable bordering on simple. But I know it's not the case I, at all. I might need your guidance here because I was looking for that online renewal option as I was working through the Canada.ca website on the weekend, and I couldn't find it. So I, I might send it to you. I, I, here we go. All right, this is what's, <laughs> this is what we're doing here. Journalists working together, <laughs> networking on the live. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Working on live TV. Uh, Michelle, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Talk to you on Friday. You too, Dave. Take care. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, advocates are calling for New Brunswick to reform its disability support program. Shelly Petit will share some perspective. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown at... At AMI, that's not true. Well, I, currently I am at, 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 at AMI. Oh my goodness, I am not talking well this morning. That is a rough shot if you are the host of a television show. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There you go. 100% full marks. Advocates are calling for New Brunswick to reform its disability support program. A draft plan is currently being trialed. Shelley Petit has some perspective to share. Shelley is the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Hey, good morning, Shelley. Good morning, Dave. Shelley, this has been some fodder for the show all day, talking about uh, the national perspective and a couple other regional perspectives. But what's at issue in New Brunswick in regards to the disability support program? So much. Um, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I like really like there's so much. I was just counting how many people you might have to contact when you first go on disability. 
So here you are, you're someone who's possibly like myself at 48, 49, your life has completely changed. And you might have to contact 12, 13 people to figure out basic supports. Like it's not realistic and it's not reasonable. And it's truly a keep people employed in the government, but let's not worry about people with disabilities and making their life better. So there's there's a proposed draft plan that's being yes. trialed right now. What is being addressed with that draft plan? What's the goal? Well, the it some of it's amazing. It really is. And I was proud to sit on the committee working on it because we talked about one point of contact, a cradle to grave plan with one point of contact so that you call, you tell your story once. You are not re-traumatized time after time after time. And then this person ensures that you are set up with the proper supports that is going to make you the most, like the best version of yourself that you can be going forward with the barriers that society has put in front of us. So it would sort of be a guide through the different ministries that you might have to deal with as a person with a disability. It's really thinking about the intersectionality and the number of points of service you might actually require in your life's journey. Right. And it doesn't make this presumption that we know the the disability program backwards and forwards, like maybe someone who's employed to know so would know. So they should be able to say, well, do you know that you would also qualify for an equipment loan on this, or that you may qualify, you've got um, a a problem with your digestive system, so for the extra money for food or blah, 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 right? To make sure that you're getting everything you need to get so that we're not ending up back at the ER twice a month because our systems are, are crapping out on us. What's the status of the trial right now? Where is it at? So they did a tri- an original trial in Miramichi last summer for about six weeks uh, with about 100 people just to see, you know, what are the kinks that are still there? Then they brought that information back to the table. Now they're doing another trial in what's called Zone 3, so the Greater Fredericton region with about 100 clients again. It's only going to last for a couple months, again, just to see what works, what doesn't work. And then because the head of the disability support program has been quite clear that she doesn't want to roll it out half functioning because then everyone's just going to say, this doesn't work and it's going to get canceled. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. she really wants to bring it back forward. And one of the goals we're hoping is that with this, more than 30% of those with disabilities actually get full support because in New Brunswick, only about 30% of those on assistance get the full DSP, the Mm -hmm. restaurant regular assistance. Shelly, I know the sample size is small based on these trials, yes. but what's some of the feedback been like? It depends on who you're asking. Uh, we've talked to persons with disabilities and our members, and they love it. They especially talk about the lack of re-traumatization and learning about services and supports they had no idea they qualified for. Some who have been on supports for 10, 20 years, and they're like, what do you mean? I could have had this and this and this all along. And wow, would that have ever changed my life? But for some reason, I apparently the third-party service providers in the province are not pleased with it. And I think that that's a bit of the disability industrial complex playing in there because one point of contact through them could result in some of these third-party service providers 
losing their contracts. Right, right. I, I can understand that. Like you say, disability, yeah. the disability complex certainly exists. In fact, that's going to be explored in a roundtable conversation a little bit later in the show about uh, telethons and fundraising for disability ah. rather than uh, rather than governments necessarily doing uh, the job that they're supposed to do. But let's do. Let, let's let's leave that one. Let's leave that one aside for now, Shelley. Yeah. That, that one's that one's mm-hmm. coming out in about an hour or so. Uh, Shelley, Excellent. what what do you think it would take to have this system more widely implemented in a permanent way? Well, it's going to take government saying, you know, government supporting it, saying, okay, we have to do better by persons with disabilities. We know that they're the most underemployed demographic out there and with proper supports, that they have proper accessible units, uh, access to proper transportation. Many more people can live better lives in terms of they might be able to work full-time or part-time. They may have, they'll have better mental health. They'll just have better overall health, which you know, it's all cyclical. When we don't have the support to the health, where do we end up? We end up on, you know, in the medical system. Mm -hmm. So, and that's overwhelmed. So imagine by having proper supports in place, the pressure that that can help relieve from the medical system. We all have to work together as one and not each group worry about their budget. Yeah. And look at it as a whole. We have, we have a billion dollar surplus. We can afford it. Yeah, it, it, it really makes me think more and more about creating more specialized disability ministries, but that are that are mm-hmm. interconnected to those other ministries. Back to this one point of contact that says, hey, this might be the Ministry of Disability. I, I know people are going to quibble with that title, but at the very least, this is where you go and they're going to help you navigate everywhere else. Like, like you said, the one point of contact or the one ministry that you've got to deal with that then builds from there. I, I, I know, I know there would probably be some, some issues here and there, but, but I wonder if more and more that that's a system we need to move towards rather than every single ministry having their own disability departments. Oh, absolutely. And then they contact the federal, they work with the federal government for their programs. And if you do move, they work with the ministry in the next province or territory as well, because again, we should all be working. Everybody at some point is going to end up under the disability category because mm-hmm. those who are not disabled are just temporarily able bodies. So let's make the world better for everybody and, so and be their best person. And Shelly, that's the last thread to pull at here, because in yeah. the draft plan, there is some conversation about definition of disability, which is certainly has come up a bunch of times here, but it's worth re-exploring, especially in this context. Why was definition considered something so important in this plan? Uh, New Brunswick has a very strict medical definition currently, and uh, it's very limiting. So as the advocates around the table, we push, 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 and when they started re- releasing the plan to us, they came up and they said, we recognize and there's going to be a social model definition of disability, looking at how barriers impact you and not necessarily a medical diagnosis. And everybody's like, yes, and so excited. And then they said, but to qualify for services, you'll need the medical model. Mm, So, mm. but one step forward is still one step forward. And as they're recognizing that there there are two different definitions and we have to look at the social model definition, that then gives us more ability to push to bring it into the DSP. Yeah, I've always been an advocate that we can uh, use both. <laughs> you know, like we don't yes. need to choose one or the other. Yes, there's there's a time where the medical model has to come in, but there are a lot of new disabilities out there that don't have a medical diagnosis yet. And mm-hmm. we have to help, and I would be one. Uh, yeah. 
you know, so they have to help work with those people as well. Uh, certain certain chronic conditions that may not manifest yep. all the time. That's certainly one that people need to consider. Yeah, the, yeah. the notion of like some invisible... Long COVID. Long COVID. Would be a good one. <laughs> invi- some, some, some invisible disabilities. Yeah, there, there's, a lot yep. of, there's a lot of stuff that, that can certainly fit into both models or one or the yep. other. So it's worth considering both. Hey, Shelly, this is fantastic. Thank you for all the work you're doing behind the scenes. And thanks for talking about it today. Anytime. We'll talk to you next month. That is Shelley Petit. Shelley is the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. In 60 seconds, John Lepke will have the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minute. Bay Street finished the week on Friday with a healthy bump, while Wall Street remained in the green as well. Toronto's S&P TSX added 95 points to close at 21,413. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 62 points, closing at 39,132. The Nasdaq, it slipped 45 points down to 15,997. Asian markets appeared mixed this morning, with Japan's Nikkei finishing up 135 points at 39,234. As for the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, it closed down 91 points at 16,635. Canadian bank shares are looking flat as they head into the first quarter earnings results due out this week, and grocery stores are turning to AI to help personalize offers, but many consumers still find the logic behind the incentives a mystery. As for the loonie, it's trading at 73.95 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Thank you very much, Rob. From money to weather, let's bring in John Lepke. John, um, it's February and therefore still winter. Yes, as evidenced by the snow that whipped my window in my bedroom yesterday evening. (laughs) Um, So to use a clothing metaphor, if you look at the uh, weather service map, uh, alert map from the government of Canada, it kind of appears like much of the country is wearing a big old red belt. That means there are snowfall and winter storm warnings that stretch as far west as Jasper, as far east as Lake Manitoba, and with an offshoot as far south as the Alberta-Montana border. In the area west of Edmonton, those snowfall warnings mean an expected 10 to 20 centimeters of snow by this evening. In central Saskatchewan, there are wind gusts of 70 kilometers an hour expected today, in addition to 10 centimeters of snow, and wind chill values below minus 40 both today and tomorrow. Much of the same for affected areas of Manitoba. And don't worry, Eastern Canada, don't feel left out of this blustery party. (laughs) A large chunk of southwestern Ontario in the Sioux Lookout area is under a winter weather travel advisory. Heavy snow is expected with the peak snowfall pace being two to five centimeters an hour. So I'd avoid that particular road hazard if you can. And meanwhile, in Quebec, from Montreal in the south, right up to the Newfoundland border, we have the opposite challenge. A low pressure system will be showing up this week, creating some rapid melting and blustery winds. Blustery being our word of the day today. <laughs> it's, not just a, it's not just a bunch of media bluster, not just a bunch of hot air being blown by John and Dave. There you go. That's in the next segment. I'm not sure Um, (laughs) that we share. Plus, just because they're special, the Ramuski area gets two warnings uh, because they're also under a snow squall watch as well at the moment. So there's a lot happening in Canada's various biomes today. Well, John, I'll tell you, it's a beautiful, sunny day in Toronto. I think we're hitting five or six degrees. So the center of the universe wins again. John, thanks for this. Talk Mm -hmm. to you a little bit later.
Talk to you later. That's John Lepke at the AMI Weather Desk, which is in Saskatchewan today. So definitely a bit of a different perspective. Coming up next, a new Netflix docudrama explores Albert Einstein's moral dilemma with the atomic bomb. Amy Amanti reviews Einstein and the bomb. Was the film the bomb? Find out. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The atomic bomb really having a moment in 2024, whether it was Oppenheimer blowing up the North American box office last year or taking home a whole bunch of hardware at award shows. Now there's a Netflix docudrama that gives a treatment to Albert Einstein and his moral quandaries with the atomic bomb. Here's a clip from the trailer of Einstein and the bomb. A warning here, the clip does contain imagery of war and the bomb and could be triggering. Albert Einstein gazes. A nuclear bomb explodes. Shockwaves destroy trees, a bus, a building, a boxcar. The first atomic bomb heralded the dawn of a troubling new era. Based on real events in the life of Albert Einstein. Past, present, and future is only an illusion. According to the theory of relativity, there is no essential distinction between mass and energy. The greatest mind of the 20th century. I made one great mistake in my life. Had I known that the Germans would not succeed in producing an atomic bomb. Faces the greatest evil the world has ever known. Troops march. I would not have taken part in opening that Pandora's box. Let's find out what entertainment critic Amy Amanti thought about Einstein and the bomb. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Amy, what drew you to this docudrama? A couple of things, actually. One is is that um, I like docudramas. Um, I like to learn things, and I like to kind of test the knowledge that I have about certain subjects. And and two is... Ever since I was a kid, I kind of had a fascination with Albert Einstein because my parents uh, owned a a delicatessen, a soup and sandwich shop called Einstein's Food for Thought. And uh, I used to work there as a kid. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, it was at the time I was like 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. And at the time, people were very much into fast food. But, you know, my mother would go in at 5 a.m. and make soups from scratch and you know, it was very, very, um, you know, homemade stuff. And so, uh, yeah, so I would make all the collages from Einstein calendars and stuff. And so I just, I, you know, I kind of I kind of have a personal draw. So I, I hit play. Amy, um, for the average viewer who might only know mm-hmm. E equals MC squared, how yeah. much do they need to know before they might jump into this docudrama? Well, I mean, the, the, the movie does a, a fair idea, you know, fair, fair job of unpacking some of this stuff. Um, it doesn't sort of use uh, familiar terms like the Manhattan Project. So, you know, if you saw Oppenheimer, you probably have a good lead in to this subject matter. Um, you know, in this clip, he he um, Einstein references opening Pandora's box. 
um, which is a reference to the Manhattan Project. And so I didn't see Oppenheimer. Um, and I actually started and stopped this film like three times before I really could get into it. Um, and so I was having a conversation with my mother about it. And I said, like, what is this film even about? Because I am having trouble getting into it. And her, because she watched it too, she watched both Oppenheimer and this one. She said, you know, for me, she said Oppenheimer was very much about um, like Einstein had a very small role in Oppenheimer around the atomic bomb. And yeah, in this movie, yeah. they, they say that Oppenheimer, uh, that Einstein has a very big role around uh, the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project. And in this film, when Einstein says, you know, he made one big mistake in his life, and that's about, you know, him sort of saying to the Americans, heads up, the Germans are going to create an atomic bomb. Here's how you do it kind of thing. But the Germans never were able to create an atomic bomb. But then the Americans were. And that opened a whole Pandora's box. How much of your difficulty in getting into the movie had to do with the way in which the story was told? I think most of it, Dave, was how the story was told. So there's this brilliant moment, I think, at the beginning, which I think is probably the problematic thing, but it's, it's a brilliant concept for storytelling but it kind of makes it a bit fragmented in which they say at the beginning of this film that all of the dialogue is taken from actual things that einstein had either said or written so you're working with dialogue that actually came from his mouth or his mm. writings um which means you're limited to what he said or put in print um which is could be an interesting challenge or could make things quite fragmented uh, it's a mixture of of an actor who's playing Einstein with archival footage, um, with uh, voiceover, with text inlaid on top of screen. Mm. So it's a mixture of all of these different storytelling um, styles. And I it just went back and forth between time and moments and different. And I just was like, where are we now? How is this connected? You know, so I found that to be a little bit discombobulated. Yeah, the, even even the way you describe it, I think of okay, that's creative, but it also sounds incredibly jarring. It is. It's it's quite um, taxing on the mind if you don't have access to the visuals, right? Back even back and forth between color and black and white, um, you know that kind of thing is a real a real powerful visual, and you know when you're in archival versus present day, which really mm -hmm. isn't present day, but mm -hmm. present day for the film based on color and black and white and all those kinds of things. But even when you're in archival and Einstein is speaking in archival versus where the actor is speaking in present day, you know, the, the actor's trying to match very closely what Einstein sounded like. And at moments you're like, okay, is this archival or is this present day? Or, or the actor would take over something that Einstein was saying from archival. So it would start with the archival and then it would blend into mm, the actor speaking mm. it today. And you're like, I don't understand. Are they in Royal Albert Hall or are they not? Because he starts with his speech in Royal Albert Hall, but then he's not in Royal Albert Hall when he continues the speech. So it was, it was hard for me to um, position myself within this film at times. And that sounds perhaps as though there was an issue with the audio description or the audio description may have required extra strategizing that didn't occur. Yeah, I think that's also true. Sometimes they weren't able to tell us when we were in or out of archival. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, I mean, this is so Dave, we've talked about this before and that it would have been great to have had like a pre-show audio setup yeah. of this film. Yeah, This would have been a great example of 
um, how that could have been utilized in a great way to set up what kind of film this is, what kind of techniques are being used, um, so that I know that all archivals in black and white and all present day is this, and that this film goes back and forth between time, and so that it sets up these, these concepts for me so that my brain doesn't have to work so hard in the moment. Um, I really hope we get to that someday, especially for things like a Netflix original series or a, a Prime original series, right? Because we have time to do that. All it has to be is a separate file at the beginning of a streaming service. Um, and they have the power to do that. So this would have been a great example of how we could utilize that kind of additional feature. When we launch our consulting firm, that's how we're going to get our first that's big right. contract. We're going to spend that Jeff Bezos money from Amazon Prime. Uh, Amy, <laughs> what, now, now knowing that you were an Einstein head going in, and, mm -hmm. and admittedly you didn't have well, you didn't have a great time getting into the storytelling. Did the film do anything well? What did it do well? I mean, I think that that if you're somebody who likes history, um, you'll probably get into it. Rather, and I like history, but it's the storytelling thing that was hard for me. Um, so I, I found that the historical knowledge was was interesting, but I was in and out of the story because of that. Um, I found that the actor that played Einstein was quite captivating. That felt very real and authentic to me. And I felt like I learned some things about Einstein that I didn't know before. And like, I feel so not smart when I say this out loud, but I actually didn't know that he was Jewish. I had always thought that he was German, um, but I didn't know that he was Jewish. He didn't practice Judaism and he didn't um, uh, identify with the Jewish, uh, Jewish religion, but he was essentially a, a Jewish. And so, um, you know, he was stripped of everything by the Nazis and fled uh, because he was Jewish as well as being, um, you know, mm quite famous and all of those kinds of things and then put into hiding. So those pieces I didn't I didn't remember about him that he had gone into hiding and all of those kinds of pieces. So there were some things about there that I was like, oh, shoot, I kind of forgot about this. And then it felt really timely to kind of what's going on today, mm. um, in a sense. And I was kind of appreciative about the time um, that I was spending with this film and how how I could connect it to the dots of, of kind of um, some of the anti-Semitism stuff that I have been experiencing here in Vancouver today. So do you recommend Einstein and the bomb? Yeah, you know what? Um, I would recommend it simply because um, docudramas have an important space um, in our uh, history of filmmaking and storytelling can be fragmented and hard. Again, it took me a couple of times to hit play on this one. I say give it a chance because it's worth the history lesson it's worth the knowledge. Um, you may just want to watch it a couple of times, um, but they're they're really trying to do something here, and maybe watch it with Oppenheimer and see how the two compare for you. That's a um, more logical double feature than Barbie and Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Those are two very juxtaposition films. <laughs> Amy, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Yeah, you too, Dave. You can find Einstein and the Bomb streaming on Netflix. You can find Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. And Laura, uh, there's, there's sort of some common threads here between Einstein and the Bomb and Oppenheimer and some awards hardware that got handed out over the weekend. Yes, that's right. A good kind of transition here between myself and Amy. So uh, the Screen, Screen Actors Guild Awards happened on Saturday. Now, they were done as a live broadcast on Netflix. 
for the first time. And they're still available if someone wants to go back and watch them on the platform. It's over a three-hour broadcast. Of course, that contain, that includes all the red carpet stuff. So these awards are chosen by SAG members, which is kind of neat. They're chosen by the actors themselves. But nonetheless, we saw pretty much a repeat of what we've been seeing all award season with Oppenheimer, Succession, and The Bear taking home the most hardware of the night. Uh, and the biggest award at the SAG Awards is Outstanding Performance by a Cast, and that went to Oppenheimer. Um, the only other thing I'll mention about that night is Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand taking home a much-deserved Lifetime oh. Achievement Award. Apparently today is one of those days where I'm, <laughs> I'm tripping over my own tongue, so please I mean, did, I mean, me did you that. not Did you not hear the way I started segment three? Uh, I, think, I think maybe there's a commonality here. There's something in the air. It's a Monday. So this this is the last big award show of the season before we get to the Oscars on March 10th. And for that reason, it's sort of considered a bit of a predictor of what is going to happen at the Oscars. So I thought that we could take a look at the films that are nominated for a Best Picture at the Oscars and kind of see where their standing is thus far okay. in award season. Now, of course, there's dozens and dozens of awards. I didn't look at all of those, but I, I looked at kind of the top ones, the Golden Globes, Critics' Choice, British Academy of uh, Film and TV, mm-hmm. and SAG, Directors Guild, People's Choice Awards. Wait, okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, Laura, you're doing so much math this morning. No wonder you're having trouble with your words. You're doing numbers all day. I, I think that's it. So we'll just run through what's nominated, Dave, and then I'm going to get your pick. So we've got American Fiction with two awards so far. Anatomy of a Fall has picked up four. Barbie has picked up 13, and most of those were at the Critics' Choice and the People's Choice Awards so far. Mm. Uh, the Holdovers with a solid eight. Killers of the Flower Moon with two. That sort of surprised me. I thought they had been doing better, but I think it's because there's been so many nominations. And Maestro picking up zero so far. Again, that surprised me a little bit, but I think it's just because it's been nominated so much that we've been seeing it over and over in those Mm. sort of awards news. Oppenheimer, 26 awards so far. And what's kind of interesting about that, so just, you know, heads and shoulders, I guess actually that's literally twice as many as Barbie, which is the second place Mm -hmm. contender for awards. But really with Oppenheimer, seeing it spread across a lot of different uh, kind of award awards that it's received, uh, Past Lives with one, Four Things with seven, and The Zone of Interest with three. So Dave, might be a little bit of an obvious one, but what's your pick for best picture at the Oscars. Well, I, I, I'm interested by the film that came in number three here in terms of your total mm. awards one, Poor Things, because it's mm. been a very polarizing film. It's also extremely weird. And if there's one thing the Academy loves, they love recognizing a strange film that has a little bit of star power behind it. I'm thinking about when The Shape of Water won the Academy Award in 2018, Mm. which looking back was just a disastrous pick. But the people who make up the Academy love these bizarre movies that they think of as film. So I wonder if maybe the Academy goes off the board here and gives poor things the big win. What do you think? I think that's 
that's very possible. I like how you're thinking. I do think it's probably going to go to Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Barbie has a hope. I don't think there's any chance that Barbie's going to win it. Um, but in terms of a second choice, I don't think we can necessarily look at the numbers so far. I think we could see Killers of the Flower Moon potentially, but I was also looking at uh, the holdovers and poor things yeah, uh, as, yeah. as likely candidates. The Holdovers has very much become a critic's darling. This is a film that a lot mm -hmm. of critics are giving a ton of love to. I, I do want to backtrack to what you mentioned about Maestro, though, with the zero wins that it's picked up. I wonder if that's just a question of on people's radar, that maybe it gets kind of lost here, even in the mix of the 10 films that have been nominated, because my friend Josh, who is a movie lover, as soon as he watched it, said Bradley Cooper, best actor, like, book it right now. And I, and I just mm -hmm. I just wonder if maybe it's a distribution thing that people don't know where to find Maestro or it's not popping up in their algorithms. It's not as algorithmically appealing. I, I, I wonder if that's maybe where a film like that is ending up, because even though it's been recommended mm -hmm. to me by a bunch of people, I still haven't hit play yet. I still haven't endeavored to watch it yet. Yeah, same. And it did have a fairly short theatrical run, and then it was on Netflix, so I believe it is on Netflix yeah, to yeah. stream. Um, I've also heard good things about the film. I haven't hit play on it yet, and I think that's why I was surprised by the zero so far. Honestly, Dave, I have some watching to do before oh, same. March 10th. Same. I haven't, <laughs> I hate to admit this, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, so I've got to I've got to make it through that one, but um, you know, speaking of Netflix, Dave, uh, well, the Oscars are not going to be there. They're going to be on CTV Canada, ABC in the States, no streaming option. What do you kind of think about this uh, streaming platform like the SAG Awards went with Netflix versus, uh, you know, on traditional mm -hmm, network mm -hmm. television? What's going to be more likely to get you to tune in? Ooh, uh, probably none of the above. <laughs> yeah. But but I, but I would just say uh, on demand is your friend and the less paywalls, the better. So uh, YouTube, put all this stuff on YouTube where I can yeah. just click one link and get it and then show me as many ads as you want. Yeah, that's fair, you know, and if I'm being honest, I'm not really one for these, like the, as I said, it's over three hours long. Um, I'm more of a watch the highlights the next day kind of person, <laughs> yeah. and that usually does happen on YouTube. So I'm with you with, with neither, although I do like the replay aspect of Netflix. Laura, I've kept you way over time here, but I do have one last thought, because it's funny. I was thinking about this this morning. I had a sense you were going to bring this topic to the table, and I've oftentimes been talking about the death and decline line of monoculture within society, that it's harder to find singular things to bring large groups of eyeballs and eardrums together to focus. And mm -hmm. and I, I know that, that you're tired of me talking about football and the Super Bowl, but, no you know, 120 million people tuned into that game in North America. And, mm -hmm. you know, the Oscars might get a handful of million of people. And you know what the difference is in regards to monoculture? You have to do homework to appreciate the Oscars. Otherwise, you're just sitting there having people talking about things that you're not part of, whereas you could not watch a single second of football for the year but still understand why you're sitting there for three hours because the score is on the screen.
Oh, Dave, I completely disagree, oh, no. even though oh, I no. do suspect that you're right, because there is a lot of homework I would have to do in order to watch a football game and have any sort of understanding <laughs> or investment um, kind of beyond the, you know, the seeing the score go up on the scoreboard. But I guess that's why they have the halftime show and the ads are for people like me who don't understand what's going on. Or you can gamble. Uh, Laura, thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain of the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, a quick neat regional news update. Some uh, funding announcements coming for colleges and universities in Ontario. And then Brock Richardson stops by to talk about the Scottish Tournament of Hearts. Maybe not quite the storybook ending that Jennifer Jones was hoping for in the finals. But Brock and I will get to that in just a couple of minutes. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and AMIplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, February the 26th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, there's a new set of haptic software glasses on the market. Sean Priest offers up his opinion on the dot lumen. And John Stewart is back as host of The Daily Show. It's been a couple of weeks. It sparked some conversation about where comedy and politics intersect. Comedian Nick Thielen will share his thoughts. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, Alberta politicians are returning to the legislature this week. Several pieces of policy will be on the table during the session. The province will unveil its budget, and Premier Danielle Smith is expected to further outline an overhaul at Alberta Health Services. Over to Ontario. Ontario's Colleges and Universities Minister is set to make a funding announcement today. John Kennedy has some more context. A government commission report released in November said that low levels of provincial funding to colleges and universities combined with the tuition cut and freeze in 2019 is posing a significant threat to the financial sustainability of the sector. The report says the funding for publicly assisted colleges for full-time domestic students is at a lower level than every other province. The expert panel recommended a one-time 10% increase in per-student funding to colleges and universities, followed by inflationary increases in subsequent years. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Well, the Scotties Tournament of Hearts wrapped up last night in Calgary. Ottawa's Rachel Homan once again finds herself as the top stone in Canadian women's curling. Team Homan beat Team Jennifer Jones 5-4. to four. Homan's rink will represent Canada at the World Championships next month. Here's what Homan had to say. But right now, we're just going to focus on what we need to do to get ready for, for Worlds and be able to win as many games as we can and try and get that medal back for Canada. The big story, besides just the outcome, is Jennifer Jones will retire from professional curling after this season. She received a standing ovation from the crowd in Calgary. Brock, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with what was a very good curling match, or do you want to start with Jennifer Jones? Uh, Do we have Brock on mute, or does Brock have Brock on mute? Brock, start over again. Let's start with uh, Jennifer Jones. Uh, Sorry, let's start with Rachel Holman, the actual game. I think that 
they uh, played really, really well. They were the most consistent team, without a doubt, uh, being 10-0 and 0, uh, in the tournament. They also beat Jennifer Jones three times in the tournament uh, to get where they got to. They are totally the best representative for the, the World Championships, and I look forward to seeing Rachel and what she can do. Also, shout-out to Tracy Fleury on the team, who is Rachel Holman's uh, third team. Uh, rock thrower she was previously a skip and so she has to have been filled in on this this the third stone thrower so to make that transition and really make it seamlessly and throw you know in the 80 to 90 uh percentile all week long is really really good rachel holman dave had a perfect game uh once this week and she was also wow. in the high 80s to low 90s most of the week so very well deserving in that and uh yeah i mean just to chat a little bit about jennifer no no Jones. let me let me let me in on rachel homan first let me I, i'm in this segment too brock let me talk too i love Go rachel homan i love rachel homan I, I i spent a lot of time at the ottawa curling club over the years covering the blind curling bond spiels and had a chance to actually uh meet rachel a few times i've had a chance to meet some of her family they hung out at a, at a bar that i used to hang out at in ottawa um the Rachel Holman story is a very interesting one, Brock, because she rocketed her way up to the up to the top of Canadian curling fast as a young woman, as a young skip, as a young professional curler, and then hit an absolute wall at the Olympics. And it ended up being a tremendously disappointing result for her, for her coaches, her team. She went off into the wilderness and rebuilt her game for six years and once again refines herself at the top of Canadian women's curling. The Rachel Homan story is an amazing one. And I think this is probably when, as we're about to put some uh, praise and flowers on Jennifer Jones, I think if you were looking for an heir apparent, Rachel Homan is it. Yeah, I think you could also place the argument. You could have. I don't think you can anymore. You could have done it for Carrie Anderson and her rink, having done what they did over the last number of years. But I do think Rachel Holman has made a real change in her game. I think when uh, her previous coach, who was with her all through childhood, uh, Earl Morris, when he left and retired, that really saw a big change with Rachel as well. Rachel was very familiar with him. He was kind of like the the granddad, as she would put it. He was kind of like the granddad in, in the group, and that's how she felt about him. So I think there's been many changes. I really, really, really like the fact that she's back on the on the top here. Last time she won a championship was uh, 2017. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're great to see her back. I oh, really, really enjoy her. Amazing, well. amazing. Such a fan. Okay, Jennifer Jones, multiple-time world champion, Olympian, stepping away at the end of this season Ah, I mean, Brock, the, the, the drama was palpable last night because the game was close and you could tell the crowd in Calgary really wanted Jennifer Jones to pull out this win. Yeah, and I'll be honest and be totally transparent here. I was conflicted with what I wanted to see happen here. Did I want to see her win her seven Scotties? Yes, 100%. But I also recognize, Dave, too, that she was stepping away once the Scotties was over. There was a lot of question marks as to what would happen uh, if her team won, as to whether, you know, who would be the skip? Would she stay? Would she go? What would happen? And I and I really was conflicted. So I think it ended the way it should have. I, as I said, Rachel Holman was the best team in Canada and should deserve. But I also, Dave, have to give full credit to Brian Mudrick and the TSN crew because they gave 
Rachel Holman her time, and they also gave Jennifer Jones her time as well. So very, very well done by by the the organization of TSN and what they did there, because it, it could have been very weird how you did the send-off there. But yeah, I was a little bit conflicted into, do I really want Jones to win because of what it means moving forward and the representation of Canada? So I think it all worked out in the end for everyone, and uh, yeah. TSN does just a phenomenal job with their curling broadcasts. Like, they are the best in the business. They're so, so good. All right, Brock, let's uh, get to another story here. This one requires a little bit of setup. It comes from the world of college basketball. The Wake Forest Demon Deacons upset the Duke Blue Devils on Saturday night. The outcome of the game is not the story. After the win, Wake Forest fans stormed the court to celebrate. Duke big man Kyle Filipowski was injured during the storming, had to be helped off the court by his coaches. Brock, why'd this story jump out to you? What do you want to say about court storming, fans storming courts and fields after upset wins? It always made me wonder why it happens. And I always wondered, okay, I understand tradition. I understand that these things happen and you celebrate and this is all well and good. But this is the exact example where I thought to myself, someone's going to get injured and someone's not going to be able to play for a while because of this court rush. When you think of the court rush, to me, it looks like a, almost like a bull rush where everyone's just rushing onto the floor and, and doing this. And we've seen this uh, in, in different games, both on the men's and women's side. And thankfully, no one's got severely hurt. But that Duke player, he looks to be really hurt and could be missing some serious time in the midst of you know, March Madness, you know, qualifications getting there. And this is a not the best of a look um, for college. And I know that the Duke coach uh, made the remark saying, you know, something's got to change. And, and it shouldn't take incidences like this to make a change, but unfortunately it does. And I think it's just as simple as letting the other team get off the floor before you core rush. And I understand that that would take away from the moment and it would – do all that, but for me, it's about player safety because you're talking about players who are going to have a future, hopefully in in basketball. And when you do that kind of thing, when it has nothing to do with the game, it has me concerned. Your thoughts? I don't think you can do organized mob mentality, but you have to do something to stop this. It happens four or five times a week. And listen, Wake Forest has only won two less games than Duke this year. It's not an upset. You're both going to the tournament. Act like you've been there before. Uh, I'm not all the way opposed to it, though, because occasionally it ends up being very fun fodder for me. The Auburn Tigers beat the Alabama Crimson Tide a couple of years ago uh, at a game, and Auburn fans were trying to hop over the edges of the bleachers to storm the field, and a bunch of people got stuck in hedges. And that's still one of my favorite videos to watch when I'm having a bad day. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a good day. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. He would never storm a court or a field. Coming up next, there is a new set of haptic glasses on the market. Sean Priest will offer his opinion on the Dot Lumen. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. 
there are more and more headsets popping up on the market. There's a new set of haptic glasses that are specifically designed for people who are blind and partially sighted. The Dot Lumen is meant to offer assistance with things like reading and shopping. Sean Priest has tried it and wants to tell you a bit about his experience. Sean is one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. Hello, Sean. Hello, Dave. How are you, sir? I am doing well. Sean, before you start talking about the device itself, let me offer a little bit of description for uh, the folks at home. It's a VR headset that sits, or it looks like a VR headset that sits above the eyes and around the back of the head. The back has a few wires that attach to a rectangular device. Sean, what are the features that drew you to the Dot Lumen? Ah, well, okay. So it's very interesting. Firstly... Why do they keep calling it glasses? As you said, it's a headband. It's like a um, Boris Becker headband that sits across the forehead. So I have no idea why they keep referring to it as glasses, because that makes me think immediately of smart sunglasses. Right. These aren't that. Uh, It is exactly as you mentioned there, described there. It goes across your forehead, around the back of your head. Um, So what drew me to these is the, the company are claiming that these can do everything that a guide dog can do. Now, that's a bold claim, my friend. This is all about mobility. Basically, this company have squashed all those cameras, sensors, LiDAR sensors, 3D mapping, all the processing power that you find in something like a self-driving Tesla or what other cars uh, into the, uh, the size of that headset. And using those, they're using it to portray or help you navigate across Uh, an environment. So just like the self-driving car can identify objects and where it is and 3D map the environment, so can this headset. And in this case, they're using that technology to help us get around, which is what we all want, right? Easy way to get around. So, Sean, you and I can get into some of the notions of comfort and aesthetic in a moment. But what ultimately matters here (laughs) is the experience, starting with the good. What did the Dot Lumen do well for you? Okay, so the way that, the, uh, look, another problem with all this technology is how do you relay that world around you back to us in a way that we can understand? You know, not visually, obviously. So what do we use? 3D audio, spatial audio, like uh, with apps such as Soundscape or something? Yes, that's one way, but this uses haptics. Now, basically, all this means is that you get uh, a band across your forehead that vibrates in different areas. And it's as simple as if you feel a vibration on the right-hand side of your forehead, let's say, then you need to head towards that way. Or you're always trying to get the haptic feedback, that little vibration in the center of your forehead. And once you're there, you know it's safe to carry on walking. It's very simple. Um, I, I find it quite strange. They they describe it as just like a guide dog will pull you by your arm, this pulls you by your head. It doesn't. That, that is total nonsense. It doesn't pull you anywhere. Basically, it vibrates. It's like there's a fly crawling across your head. That sounds like a terrible description, but honestly, <laughs> that's just what it's like, but it's not annoying. Uh, so that's that's sort of the the purpose in your experience. What were some of the negatives that you experienced? What were some of the drawbacks? Okay, so I tried this out at the Zero Project in Vienna. Now, let's bear in mind that I tried this out for 
a couple of minutes at most, maybe. And I tried this out in a corridor, navigating around. And admittedly, it did it very well. As soon as someone was in front of me, people were walking in front of me, the vibration would stop. I would stop and then when it was clear or it would vibrate in a different direction to show me which way to go around. Um, and I could do that perfectly without a white stick or anything. That was great, but that's a very limited experience. Let me know uh, or uh, let me try these outside when I'm trying to get a train in a crowded station. Right, right. I'm trying to find a crossing, trying not to walk into an overhanging bush send, or car. Send you, send you onto the convention floor of the Zero Conference. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the outside environment for me, which is where these are really going to show if they can deliver on their promises. Now, the technology that they're talking about, it, it is very impressive. We're talking about being able to steer you around things like puddles and mud and distinguish, you know, trees and foliage, organic versus concrete, for example. And it's saying it can do all that because of all the work that's gone into the self-driving cars, being able to identify these things as well. So the technology is is the promise of the technology, as we always talk about, the potential is absolutely amazing. But these have got to earn my trust. I, I don't know yet. I honestly don't know. I had a great experience in that limited, limited environment. Take them outside, we'll have to wait and see. What about comfort and aesthetics? On the comfort side, uh, you know, that, that's important. If you're going to wear this thing all day, that matters. And you've also previously talked about how sometimes assistive tech can be a little bit clunky and make you feel a little bit awkward. So what about comfort and aesthetics? Okay, so the comfort side of things, I was actually pleasantly surprised. They were fairly light. Um, they felt absolutely fine. And the ones I tried were like a pre-production prototype. And they say that they're going to get the weight down even more. And, you know, it, it barely felt any more than a, a baseball cap, to be honest. I was very, very impressed. With that being said, with the one that I wore, the headset that I wore, it was a little bit unbalanced so it almost felt like i was balancing something on the top of my head it was <laughs> it was slightly strange um but that will improve when these come to market these aren't available as of yet to buy now as for how they look mm, i honestly i don't know i had i came away from the experience and someone said to me well you well i won't actually say what they told me i looked like but it wasn't it wasn't a positive glowing review let's say <laughs> yeah sean but, uh, sean i'm gonna interrupt you there's actually a video of you on screen right now walking oh, well, around me, uh, wearing them uh, eh, uh the, the front looks fine the the technology at the back looks a little bit uh bulky and awkward but just the front looks like kind of a regular uh, golf visor so th there's definitely in terms of like getting maybe some of the com the computer down to a smaller level it might actually look pretty decent and like pretty inconspicuous uh, like the discussion we had recently, Dave, about, you know, we want to, we don't want to stand out and look ridiculous wearing this tech, right? Um, but if this works as well as they claim it could do, would I really care that much? If it meant I could just, you know, grab one of these and means I could get around safely, easily, quickly, I probably wouldn't care that much as long as it's not absolutely ridiculous. And I did speak to someone else there, actually, at Zero Project, who who tried this out. And he actually wears something, I think it's called the Navi Belt, which is a very similar concept. Mm -hmm. Batteries, mm -hmm. you know, batteries, cameras, and, and things, sensors, but worn around the waist, obviously, like a belt. And it does the same sort of thing. So, And he says, I love it. 
It was a, 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 almost a lifesaver. He said he, he thinks it's absolutely fantastic. Now, I have no idea what that looks like. It's probably less conspicuous wearing it as a belt. But either way, if it if it delivers on what it can promise, I'm not too worried about the aesthetics. Sean, uh, just before I let you go and before I ask you what's coming up on the show today, how was your time in Austria? Oh, it was amazing. Apart from hearing Mr. F talk German, it was quite possibly the most scary thing I've ever heard in my life. A man mountain of a man shouting German at me in a taxi. I'm surprised I made it back, but it was fantastic. Oh, that Mr. F. Uh, And uh, Sean, what do you guys have on deck here after what was a very busy week for you and Stephen? What do you guys have on deck for today's edition of Double Tap? Well, today we're going to talk to uh, disability advocate, campaigner, if you will, uh, Colin Hughes. Now, he's got some amazing um, thoughts and opinions on various bits of tech, including the human, uh, humane, I should say, AI pin and the Neuralink from Elon Musk. Oh, right on. Hey, Sean, thank you for this. I'm glad the travels were safe. Welcome back to the shed. Talk to you uh, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dave. Take care. That's Sean Priest. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap. Again, you can find that show daily, noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. And if you want to learn more about the Dot Lumen, you can visit dotlumen.com, D-O-T-L-U-M-E-N.com, dotlumen.com. Coming up after the break, do major fundraisers for disabilities let governments off the hook in terms of actually providing support for people with disabilities? This question will be explored in the roundtable with John Lepke, Ramya Amuthan, and myself. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. John Lepke, you want to bring something to the roundtable here that's from your neck of the woods, but it speaks to the disability experience more broadly in the charity model. Yeah, trust the Saskatchewanian to want to bring a Saskatchewan story. But locally here in the province, this past weekend marked the 48th Telemerical Telethon. For those who don't know, the Telethon, which is hosted by the Kinsmen, is one of the largest disability-focused fundraisers in the country and bankrolls much of the durable medical equipment and other supports provided to Saskatchewan's disabled people outside of provincial programs and stockpiles. The event itself lasts much of the weekend, including overnight, 20 hours in total, and includes performances from artists across the province, many delegations to the stage, and it truly does spark a lot of conversation about community support this time of year. They raised just over $6.1 million in those 20 hours. Telemiracle has traditionally escaped much of the scrutiny that other disability-focused telethons, like the Jerry Lewis Telethon in support of those with muscular dystrophy, have faced over the years. Namely, that telethons require disabled people to perform their trauma for the funding that re- that's required to have a higher quality of life, and that this can lead to governments lessening funding overall because of this form of the charity model. This leads me to ask, Ramya, what are your initial thoughts on a fundraiser of this type and on this scale? Um, Okay, so it it was interesting that you pointed out why it has escaped scrutiny all this time um, to similar other initiatives. And I think for me, 
honestly, whenever there's anything like this, first of all, I, I love that anything, I love when anything is arts, right? So I always come in thinking, okay, this is cool because it's arts. But whenever there's this kind of inspiration porn uh, potential, I want to say potential because it may or may not be, and it may depend on the person, where they are, their stage. Um, but in general, you know, I've been part of things in the past for me personally where I felt this kind of unsettled uh, feeling of not necessarily, you know, my story being used in a certain way or feeling like this is not an authentic representation of how I want to be uh, perceived or portrayed. And that kind of thing always sits with me when I am watching something or hearing about something else that's going on in similar vein, thinking like, are people's stories being portrayed in the way that they want to? And and even if they are at that stage, um, does it make a difference for them later? Fundamentally, I am not going to sit here this morning and dismiss the raising of $6.1 million for people with disabilities. Like, I, I'm not going to do that because clearly this telethon connects with people in Saskatchewan and is receiving ongoing support. However, John, I do see what you're talking about here because I've said this once and I'll say it a million times. Kindness is not a replacement for good government policy. And when you talk about durable medical devices and other forms of technical support for people with disabilities, no government should be allowed to skate for the lacking support they offer to people with disabilities. So my problem is not with a fundraising charity model. My problem is that the desperation gets portrayed and presented instead of governments actually doing their jobs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think for me and, and you know, full disclosure, I, I've performed at these things. Um, I have friends who, who have disabilities who have performed at this stage in this province. Um, and even I will have to probably apply to Telemiracle to get a lift on the front of my house. Um, I am biting a little bit the hand that, that feeds in this province with bringing this topic forward. But I think a lot of people in Saskatchewan see it right now as a means to an end. Um, we need those supports for disabled people, people with disabilities in this province, and that Telemiracle has raised upwards of $165 million since 1977 is um, a blessing and a curse in that it also reaffirms this provincial identity of us as a giving province, and yet it, we have a province where those supports are often lacking in these formalized ways. Yeah, Ramya, fundamentally, it, it goes down to not dismissing or criticizing people's generosity. It's about criticizing a system that creates desperation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because charity and charitable organization is everywhere. And we know we can name and list off the mm -hmm. top of our heads. Mm -hmm. There's so many, right? <laughs> and, and, and big, like huge foundations that do incredible uh, funding or receive incredible funding and support from people, from the general public, even I'd say. But uh, you're right, I think, Dave, in the sense that like, I often wonder how st this approach is feeling very outdated, very criticized. Um, stories come out and then you start wondering if there is 
another way, a better way. And there are, but who's going to bridge that gap, right? Yeah, Strike yeah. Strike that balance. That's right, because you can't just stop right now. You can't just take $6 million no. out of the system for people with disabilities. That is not the practical solution here. But Ramya, I love the fact that you used the word outdated, because John, that's what these telethons feel to me now, that they're maybe not quite in lockstep with the broader conversation that's going on around disability, or it's representative of maybe a position that was uh, more acceptable, not acceptable, but more commonplace, more colloquial 25 years ago, 20 or 25 years ago. I absolutely agree. I think that the the system, you know, as we keep coming back to the, the system as it exists, tel- telemiracle needs to be there. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there would be a lot of people who would have to be relying on these provincial equipment stockpiles that can be outdated or, you know, the um, telemicrals really they're meant to catch the sort of like somebody needs a $40,000 wheelchair that isn't suddenly mm-hmm. at um Mm-hmm. You know, as mm-hmm. those medical equipment, but we were talking earlier in the show about some of the problems with Ontario's uh, equipment providers. Like these are provi- providing systems. Like these barriers exist so differently from province to province, and I, I feel like this is Saskatchewan's response. And that perhaps, like you said, um, doing the quick math in my head, forty-seven, forty-eight years on, you know, there it is time to take a look at how the telemiracle system can be that energy can be utilized in possibly a different way because it really does sort of galvanize the uh, the kinsmen Mm -hmm. that host it and the artists that create it but but does that um you know, is that means to an end to the way we want to move forward. Yeah, Ramya, I think John is at least correct here a bit, though, to talk about the platforming of people with disabilities here, that if the telethon does platform people with disabilities and, and they want to do it and they want to be engaged with it, again, I'm not going to sit here on Monday morning and criticize that. If somebody wants to be a part of this, I've, I'm not going to be the uh, disability person who's throwing buckets of cold water on everybody. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I kind of did that at the beginning. But like, honestly, though, there is a part of this. There are elements that I feel instill ableism or like, ironically, so as we say, you know, we need the help, we need the the um, uh, support and especially financially in all these different ways. Uh, however, the way that it is being done can feel yeah. uncomfortable for yeah. a lot of us. Yeah. Like the execution really matters here, and like and like I think we're all agreeing here. Hey, don't make disab- people with disabilities uh, sing for their supper or tap dance for their sucker exactly. supper because that's not exactly uh, what a modern society should look like. Okay, John, thank you for. Uh, filling in for Alex today. It's much appreciated. Ramya, before I let you go, you have to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time, and then I'm going to ask you the daily poll question. Sure. So uh, on Kelly and Ramya today, it's going to be myself and Grant Hardy hosting the show. We're talking about foods that are good for the brain, and that's going to be an interesting conversation with nutritionist Julia oh, Granges. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Please say pizza. Please say pizza. Please. Highly doubt it. Please say chicken wings, French fries, French fries, amazing for the brain. Maybe chicken wings get the protein. Well, well, anyway, yeah. that's, me, know, that's me, though, not you, Julia talking. You, you know, they call tuna brain food. It's probably because there's so much dolphin in it. You know how smart they are. Right, exactly. Um, and then we also have Know Your Rights with Danielle McLaughlin. She's going to come on tomorrow as well for our book club uh, to review Actress. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then we have Tech Talk with, um, not Tech Talk, sorry, our 
yeah, our Monday Tech Talk with Michael Babcock. And he's talking about the VR glasses from Apple that are out and in the wild. He says, I believe he actually had some time to play with it. So I wonder if he put the $3,500 down to get those on his head. Yeah, I I have had a controversial thoughts about the VR. Okay, well, all right, Ramya, here we go. Here comes the daily poll, which folks can find at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. How would you describe your experience? How would you describe, I'm really good at reading today. How would you describe your experience accessing government programs, complicated, reasonable, or simple? The conversation was prompted, Ramya, by Shelley Petit of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, talking about how access points in the system should be changed so you don't need to deal with 14 or 15 different points of contact when accessing a disability service in the province of New Brunswick. I'm trying to broaden this out. I shared my experience of trying to uh, renew my passport on the weekend, mm. or at least the beginning of my passport <laughs> renewal process, and uh, finding it to be a smidge overwhelming, but also understanding that, you know, passports can't just be rubber stamped on this thing. Mm. But I, I found it to be a little bit complicated. I, I was trying to look for something very specific and I couldn't find the answer that I was looking for. So I would say that it's somewhere between complicated and reasonable. And my knee jerk reaction is complicated. I, for me, it's always been about, am I able to do something independently? And the first time I had to get my health card renewed or uh, get a hold of my Ontario card or uh, like, which is the provincial ID, right? If you don't have a license and or passport, as you said, I would walk into Service Canada or Service Ontario and feel extremely lost. And that's from the, the, physical accessibility, like lining up and knowing that I'm in the right spot, knowing that I have the the right, uh, I'm at the right place in the right department. And then also just the the form filling, you know, there's so much catch up that I find a lot of this stuff needs, which is, uh, you know, are we still doing pen and paper? Like at one point, there was a an experience I had where the, the person um, at the desk said that I need to get this filled out. I said I live alone and don't have a sighted uh, person who can help me. And they said, well, maybe you could find someone in line. You oh, know, those my kinds gosh. Of things are, oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, super embarrassing, super humiliating. And, um, you know, just is should not be the answer or the, the lack of training response from somebody. Right. Like and that's why um, the online like if you already have these identifications and you go online to just renew, I find that that experience is a bit more calm and straightforward dave so i i would agree with you in the the reasonable department but then everything else i find takes a lot of work around takes a lot of actual support from other people who you may not want to share things with because these are private um confidential yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, things documentation yeah. here's a picture of my passports would you <laughs> would you please uh, be kindly not use this to steal my identity Right, exactly. Stuff like that. Um, <laughs> here's my social insurance number. Here's my healthcare number. Here's a picture of my passport. Please don't steal my identity. I do find, though, like with the city of Toronto, when we're talking sports and recreation services that are offered, um, you know, across the city uh, through like community centers and all that kind of thing, there's a much more straightforward process, especially online. And I find it to be quite accessible to kind of find information, find contact numbers, uh, and get a hold of people, like real people 
to get questions answered. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ramya, yeah. thank you for this. Landing the plane with a little bit of optimism. I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. That, that's Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Of course, today it's Ramya in Grant, but I can't say that because that doesn't match the graphic on screen. Described video is important. Coming up after the break, Jon Stewart is back as host of The Daily Show uh, at least a couple times here and there. It's been a few weeks and it's spawned some conversations about where comedy and politics intersect. Comedian Nick Thielen will share his thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Jon Stewart is back as the host of The Daily Show, at least on Mondays. It's been a couple of episodes, and it's gotten some praise and some criticism, and it once again sparks the conversation of where comedy and politics intersect. Nick Thielen has some thoughts on this. Nick is a comedian based in Alberta. Hey, Nick, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm great. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, I thought the first two appearances of Jon Stewart were pretty good. I I thought they were pretty funny. They were pretty incisive. Uh, There's been some blowback. What do you think about uh, the first couple of appearances of uh, Jon Stewart back as the host of The Daily Show? Yeah, I agree with you, Dave. I I thought they were really good. Um, I think, you know, uh, what he really did was bring up, uh, you know, the fact that we're likely looking at, uh, at least in America, you know, Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden election. And both of them are are in their 70s, if I'm not mistaken, or will be by the time they're running. And um, if, if you, when you look at what he actually made fun of, it's just the reality. Like um, the fact the fact that they were talking about these, uh, you know, the, the, the tests that the, the presidents had to go through in terms of whether they're actually capable of doing their jobs and um you know like when joe biden was doing this press conference he actually said you know let me answer the question and then um when he walked back he was talking about um some sort of war or something that happened and mentioned uh the, the, the president of, of Mexico actually got the president of Mexico and Egypt mixed up and you know actually dug himself in more of a hole, you know, actually in, in terms of uh, what, what I think whether or not he's actually capable. And then they also talked about things like um, what, when he, for the Super Bowl, he could have chosen to do uh, a speech before then talking, um, you know, indicating sort of the platform that he has for the upcoming election. And, and they chose not to, instead they chose to launch his uh his political TikTok, I guess, in which he talked about the game and they asked him whether he would uh, like to cheer for, you know, which one of the Kelsey brothers he prefers. And he said he prefers uh, Mama Kelsey because she makes good chocolate chip cookies. And I don't think that's really a good indicator, you know, a good, uh, you know, sign that, <laughs> that uh, maybe, I don't know, I don't know, he's maybe not the most modern um, political candidate out there. 
Um, Nick, let, let's pivot off Joe Biden here. Let, let's stick to comedy and John Stewart. I don't think anyone wants enough. to hear yeah. our, our political our, our, our political evaluations of the two uh, very underwhelming uh, presidential candidates uh, running to run the you know most important democracy in the world. Uh, let's yeah. talk again about comedy. Let's focus on the comedy here because one of the reasons John Stewart got the blowback that he got, especially from Democrats, is they did not like the fact that he was addressing the Biden age issue and some of the Biden charisma issues while still fairly criticizing Donald Trump as well. What do you mm. think the role comedy can play in challenging political ideologies, but maybe even trying to challenge political narratives? Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, with I think it's important to know that with comedy, it really takes, you know, the message um sometimes they can get really confused in terms of what they're sharing and i think it really in terms of hierarchy like um you really want to make it seem so that like everyone is on a on a level playing field right so i think that um <laughs> sorry um i think it's important to hold the government accountable for what they're doing and um when we are able to share our, our opinions kind of on uh, social media or, um, you know, have sort of, you know, be able to, to uh, make jokes about it. It makes these topics more approachable for, for the average public. Um, and like, I, I was thinking about, uh, you know, if you remember an, an ad for a house hippo uh, when, I, when I was younger, uh, you know, the house hippo told you to, to challenge the things you looked at on TV and, and, and uh, not take them all as facts. And um, I think that's important to notice as well. Um, so, um, and also, like, it was fun, I think, when John mentioned uh, the fact that, you know, maybe... Uh, that uh, it's a kind of a dying medium in terms of, you know, like TV being a dying medium and, and a lot of people going over to social media, um, you know, sort of addressing those things head on. And, um, and you know, I, I think it's important to, uh, to sort of talk about those topics and be able to, um, you know, obviously be able to challenge them and to... Uh, hold the government accountable and to have people share what they think, you know? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick, fun, fun, uh, fund, so fundamentally, one of the reasons why I really liked what John Stewart did the last couple of weeks is he was talking about real stuff. It wasn't sort of a figment of the imagination or some cheerleading, because that's maybe the one criticism that I would have about comedy in the political space, especially in the last four or five years. It's become more about sort of trash talking points that you would get in mainstream media anyway, rather than a real grappling with bigger issues. And again, that comedy and politics have intersected for decades on end, right? George Carlin was a deeply political comedian. Mm -hmm. John Stewart did this for, for a long, long time before he stepped away for a little bit. You can do comedy in politics, but I do put the one caution on it that if you're going to do it, do it right and do it well. Yeah, you're right. And he did talk about the importance is, you know, to, to, uh, to, you know, the, their election is November 5th, but also it's important to note that like 
all those the days before the election and the days after the election are still important so it's really about i think also making it um you know relatable to to the general public you know as a personally uh you're not going to care too much about for example like you know political agreements maybe nafta or certain certain things like that and and uh i think that you know, you worry more about whether you're going to be able to pay the electricity bill and the food bill. You're not worried about political trade and 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 all those sorts of things. So making it just so that it's relatable and using comedy, because I think if, even if you were to talk about, you know, a simple subject like, you know, bananas or whatever, if you don't use comedy to talk about, you know, maybe how the monkeys or whatever open up bananas weird and, and that then you think, you know, that you know, it's kind of going to be boring if you don't introduce some, some comedy into it. And, uh, and, and, you know, at least, um, I think it, you know, it's really important to, to challenge, to challenge them in comedy. And I think that we, we also see a lot of, especially in the U S we see a lot of, um, you know, celebrities endorsing, um, endorsing political candidates and it's i think debatable whether or not that's effective but i think it at least uh you know encourages people to get uh involved in the political process and look into the to the campaigns and be involved so i think that's important you know i think that does help a little bit in terms of um you know at least getting people involved and especially with these some of the close campaigns that have happened uh i think it's important uh, well, I think it at least brings attention. Especially, like in the U.S., they have a year-round campaign, so it can get quite boring. So, so I think you need some comedy to sort of, you know, um, help people kind of figure out what to, you know, what what's uh, what to focus on. But also, to uh, comedy sometimes helps to clear away the, uh, um, you know, the, uh, you know cut down the stuff in politics and really uh make it easy so yeah know? yeah nick we got to get out of here we're gonna hit the hard out oh, thank you for this that's okay. nick thiel and he's a comedian based in alberta until tomorrow i'm dave brown reminding you to play safe play fair but don't forget to have some fun The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.